Matthew 27. This morning we're going to read from 27 to 38. uh, Chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and put a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on and led him away to crucify him. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they made him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, and another on the left. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive and understand. Lord, we pray that as we meditate this morning together in your word on this most precious passage of Scripture, we pray, Lord, that uh, we would see that which you want us to see. And Lord, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would see this morning how amazing you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning I would like to read you a confession of a pastor theologian regarding the sufferings and the death of Christ. I quote, Then this, there is no subject more mysterious and yet most sacred in the whole realm of revealed truth. This is the heart of that mystery of the love and wisdom of God, which wrought towards and made possible the salvation of you and I, of man. At the commencement of this study, I would place on record, not idly and not for the mere sake of doing so, but under the urgency of a great conviction that I am deeply conscious of approaching things too high and too profound for any finality of statement. Personally, I increasingly shrink from any attempt to deal in detail of the great fact of the cross. This is not because I am growing away from it, but rather on account of the fact that I am more deeply conscious every day of my need of all it stands for, and as I have pressed closer to its heart, I have become almost overwhelmed with its unfathomable deeps and its infinite mystery. G. Campbell Morgan the late G. Campbell Morgan. 
What he's saying here is that it's not that it's not because I'm forgetting about the cross that I hesitate or I increasingly shrink from explaining it. And I love how he says it's too profound for any finality of statement. It's because he's coming to a greater consciousness of the depths and the mystery of the cross. And this is exactly how we all should feel as we now approach this holy section of the gospel where Jesus is now not, no longer on trial. He's been sentenced to death, delivered over to death to be crucified. This is how we should approach this. And all the sermons that we hear on this subject, whether here at All Saints Church or anywhere, do not fully do justice to this, this fact, this event, this matter. So whatever I say, don't take that as a finality of statement. In the modern vernacular, this section, this event, the crucifixion of Jesus, this is it. To put it in modern vernacular, this is it. This is the pinnacle of Mount Everest, theologically speaking. You cannot go higher than this. Salvation, true justice, true love and God are to be found here. One theologian says, one is in a holy of holies, a mercy seat sprinkled with blood to which only the spirit-taught mind has access. You see, non-Christians cannot understand the crucifixion of Jesus. Non-Christians don't understand this event. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. To a non-Christian, he reads the crucifixion of Jesus and the sufferings of Jesus as just a historical event with no meaning that relates to him and his salvation and his sin. He can't understand how could this Jew in the first century be the son of God who's paying for my sins. How do you understand that? How do you wrap your mind around that? Unless the Spirit reveals that to you. It's something that God must show you. If men do not discover God, if they do not discover who God is here in the crucifixion of Jesus, they cannot discover who he is anywhere. People want to know who God is, but they look in all the wrong places. He's to be found here, brothers and sisters. And this is why it's so difficult, this section, because this is the ultimate place to find God. And yet, as Morgan said, words seem to fail us when we come to this event, when we come to this moment. The apostles themselves, you'll notice, write about the crucifixion of Jesus with extreme passivity, don't they? Have you noticed how they mention the crucifixion? They just go over the details as if it was just Common fact. There's a sense in their words that words don't do justice. They don't go into all the harrowing details of the crucifixion. They mention that he was crucified. And it's not because the harrowing details aren't important that they don't mention them. They want us to be thoughtful readers. You see? They don't just want to tell us everything that happened. They want us to read thoughtfully. They crucified him. Do you know what crucifixion is? That's what they did to him. Imagine it. Picture it. Read thoughtfully. I don't have to hold your hand and walk you through the whole thing. 
and tell you, oh, then they put a nail into his right hand. Even though this is the most significant event in the history of the world, it gets such a passing statement. And then they put the nail on his left hand. And then they put the nail on his feet. And then they hoisted the cross up. No, they crucified him. Be thoughtful as you read this. Words won't do it justice. And yet, of course, it's not less than words because it's through the apostles' words that they recorded that we encounter Christ. But it must be more than the words. The apostles saw this. The apostles, the apostles received the understanding of the cross. They saw the love of God. They saw the atonement for sin being taken place in the crucifixion of Jesus. And they want us to read their read into their words the same thing that they saw or to see through their words the same impression that they received. Let us be thoughtful readers as we read about the crucifixion of Jesus. Ever wondered why the New Testament, even though it speaks much of the forgiveness of sins and much, much of righteousness through faith, doesn't everywhere talk about that? It's not because that's a little thing. It's not because the apostles don't want, to, don't want us to see righteousness through faith everywhere. It's that they want us to be thoughtful readers. They don't want to hold our hand all the while and say, oh, and by the way, this has to do with righteousness through faith too. And this has to do with righteousness through faith too. And this has to do with righteousness through faith too. This is how we need to proceed as we read this section. There are a few words... But there is so much here that we have to read and see what is behind the words. And so we go forward. Now as we go forward, let us notice the appearance of Jesus. Let's read through the words and imagine in our heads what Jesus looks like at this moment in verse 27 when it says the soldiers took Jesus into the common hall. You'll notice in verse 26 that Pilate delivered Jesus up to be scourged. To be scourged. So at this point, when the soldiers take Jesus into the hall, Jesus is a mangled mess. His flesh has been torn from his body. When the Romans scourged people, they didn't just scourge him with a nice leather uh, whip or a rope. But what we know from the historical records, they would scourge their prisoners with these cat nine tails this deathly disturbing whip with pieces of bone and metal in it. And they would whip their prisoners and lacerate their bodies and open the flesh until basically their back was just a mess of flesh, opened wound, festering, open wounds. And this is what Jesus is right now. The, the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament that Jesus was marred more than any other man. So whatever they did to Jesus in verse 26, when they take him into verse 27, unless you knew that that was the same guy they whipped, you might not recognize it was Jesus. A mangled piece of flesh. And consider how marvelous it is. Who this is. Consider just for a moment as we go forward, who is this mangled piece of flesh? This person that you can't even recognize, completely bloodied and torn, who is that? Consider who this is and you'll see how marvelous it is that this mangled piece of flesh is God, the creator, through whom all things were made. 
Isn't that amazing that the God who created the world now stands on its soil unrecognizably beaten? And consider for whom he is suffering. Why is the creator of the world a mangled piece of flesh? Why is he unrecognizable? Why is he here subjecting himself to this torture? For whom is he doing this? For us. For you. For you and for me and for us. And who are we? We aren't the creators of the world. We aren't demigods. We aren't good. We are sinful man whom he created from the dust who wouldn't even have an existence apart from him. Who wouldn't have life apart from him who wouldn't enjoy anything apart from him and who have sinned against him and our crime merits eternal punishment and this is whom he's suffering for. Consider how marvelous this is. Who it is and for whom he is suffering. Verse 27, the thing that stands out is that this is now the work of soldiers. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. Jesus has now been delivered into the hands of soldiers. Now, soldiers tend to be rough people, don't they? Soldiers don't tend to be the sensitive kind, right? Soldiers have to be willing to fight and to kill. And in the first century, they had to be willing to kill with a sword. These were rough men, J.C. Ryle tells us, a body of men no doubt expert in cruelty and of all people least likely to behave with delicacy and compassion. Jesus is now surrounded by a whole band of soldiers. Instead of crucifying him immediately, they bring him into the common hall and gather a band around Jesus. Why did they do this? He was delivered up to be crucified. Why did the soldiers not take him and crucify him immediately? What we see here in this section is that they intended to mock Jesus before they crucified him. They wanted to mock him. Why did they want to mock him? Well, we know that the Romans were prejudiced against the Jews. And so I'm sure the king of the Jews, they wouldn't have liked very much and what he would have stood for. I heard a question asked once, were the Romans racist? And the answer I heard was, no, they pretty much fought, enslaved, bartered, and killed everyone equally. (laughs) Which is actually not quite true. The Romans saw themselves as serving humanity. The Romans saw their society as the best thing since sliced bread. And the Romans wanted to go and take over the world, not because they were just greedy, not just because they thought other people were lesser than they were. They might have thought other people were not advanced culturally as they were, but they wanted to serve the world by bringing everyone into Roman society. That's one of the reasons the Romans were what they were. Because they didn't just go around and pillage everybody and kick them out or put them into slavery. They went around and they made people Romans, which is why they were so successful. They saw themselves as serving humanity and anyone who was against Rome was a hater of humanity in the eyes of the Romans. Why would you resist us when this is the best thing for mankind? This is why they disliked the Jews so much because the Jews didn't get on board with the Roman program. 
See, the Jews didn't believe that Roman society was the best thing for humanity. The Jews believed that God was the best thing for humanity and that God's reign was the best thing for humanity. And so the Romans and the Jews didn't mix well and there was always a tense relationship between the two. So here is the king of the Jews. He stands for everything that the Romans despise and they are going to mock him well. These soldiers are not thoughtful men wanting to learn, wanting to discover truth. Are we doing the right thing here? Remember Pilate? Jesus says, I came into the world to testify of the truth and all who are of the truth listen to me. And Pilate said, what is truth? And walked away. Now if the Roman leaders were like that, how much more their soldiers? Rome was pragmatic, not philalethical a word that means lovers of truth. They were pragmatic. They just were interested in what worked, what made things run smoothly, what made people get along, if that meant mixing God's fair enough. They were not philalethical, lovers of truth. Not loving truth, brothers and sisters, is a serious sin. If you don't love truth, you're inevitably going to be tangled up in lies and become the devil's puppet. If you don't love truth, the scriptures say, you cannot be saved. If you don't love truth, God himself, as a judgment upon you, will hand you over to Satan. If you don't love truth, God will see to it that you won't be saved. Not loving truth is a serious sin. In many ways, our society today is becoming more and more Roman, isn't it? Lackadaisical about truth, interested solely in pragmatism, with a rising culture of mockery against those who seek truth and honor God. See what a culture, such a culture does with the Son of God. They mock him. Verse 28 and 29, the mocking begins. The first thing that the Roman soldiers do is that they change Jesus' wardrobe. They violently rip the clothes off of his sticky lacerated body and they throw a scarlet robe over top of him. They twist together a crown of thorns to mock his alleged kingship and they shove it on his head and then every king needs a scepter and so they take a reed, common reed, and put that into his right hand, the hand of his strength and when everything is set, Now the king of the Jews is before them with the crown of thorns and the reed in his hands and the royal robe of scarlet. They bow down to him and they hail him, the king of the Jews. Imagine this whole band of Roman soldiers doing this. One after another after another. Probably about 300 to 500 men, they estimate. And as they get up from their knees, after hailing him king of the Jews, they spit in his face and they strike him on the head with his own reed, in verse 30, and took the reed and smote him on the head, taking the reed out of his own right hand and hitting him on the head with it. I don't know if you've ever been hit in the head with a stick, but it hurts a lot, doesn't it? Imagine being hit in the head over and over and over and over again while being mocked and spit on by a bunch of cruel soldiers. Now, they must have found this terribly funny, and I'm sure that there was genuine laughter in that hall that day. Genuine laughter. 
these men are finding this extremely funny. But if they knew who Jesus was, they would not have been laughing. Who is the man that they threw this robe over, that they forcibly stripped and threw the scarlet robe over? Who is the man that they're, that they're clothing in a mocking way? None other than their creator. Can you imagine what a shock that would be if they knew that? Their creator, the creator of the world, who will one day be seen by all the world, as Revelation chapter 19 tells us, he comes on a cloud, in, on a white horse, his vestment is dipped in blood. One day the whole world will see Christ again, yes, dressed in a scarlet robe. And it says in the book of Revelation chapter 19, his vestment is dipped in blood and on his vestment is written the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a day that will be. Jesus is stripped naked by them and then covered with this robe. Jesus' nakedness is pointed out by Matthew here and on the cross. Jesus was naked because of you and me, because of our sin. You'll remember that nakedness and shame, which the Romans loved to inflict upon their captors. They loved to strip them naked because they knew it was a shameful thing. And they loved to humiliate those who were in their power. Nakedness and shame is because of our sin. And the one who should not be naked and the one who should have no shame the one who is glorified above all things is here naked and shamed before a cohort of Roman soldiers because of us. He has stepped into our sin and he is bearing our judgment, our nakedness and our shame. As one song that we sing says, bearing shame and mocking rude in my place condemned he stood. If anyone should have been shamed and mocked, it should be us, right? Isn't it beautiful that God, in my place, condemned he stood? Did that so I would not have to perish. Matthew Henry writes, The shame of nakedness came in with sin, and therefore Christ, when he came to satisfy for sin and take it away, was made naked and submitted to that shame that he might prepare for us white raiment to cover us. Isn't that what God does for us when we come to Christ? As he covers us, he covers all of our shame. And the scripture says, whoever believes in Christ will never be ashamed. If you have believed in Christ, you never need to ever fear God shaming you. You ever wonder, even as a Christian, if when you get to heaven, you're going to be shamed by God? He's going to say, well, you're not going to go to hell. You've got to go to heaven, but in... In order to get into heaven, you're going to have to, we're going to have to put your life on the video screen and all, all the angels are going to have to open their mouth and aghast and see how horrible you are. And when it's all over, you can enjoy heavenly bliss. <laughs> you will not be ashamed because Christ bore your sin and took it away. God won't remember your sin in heaven, brothers and sisters. It's amazing how Christians even think that would happen. You're going to be shocked when you get there that you will not be ashamed how he's covered you with, him, with himself. 
the crown of thorns, also an echo of the fall. Because what was another result of the fall? What was another result of the sin of man? The thorns that grew up out of the ground. And these thorns would never have been in the earth were it not for our sin. And these thorns, which should never have been in the earth but for our sin, are now pressing down upon the head of the Son of God. Painfully. feels like a big weight is upon his head. And indeed, there was a big weight upon his head. He was crowned with the penalty of our sin. He was crowned with the penalty of our sin. It's amazing that he came into the world to atone for our sins and to save us, but he did it in such a way, he allowed himself to be mocked the whole way. Isn't that amazing? Well, okay, it's beautiful enough if you came to die for our sin, but if he did it in such a way that he didn't get mocked and all that, all the way to the end he was mocked. And he was doing it for us. One day men will see, it says again in Revelation 19, when they see the Son of Man coming on the white horse, his vestment dipped in blood, the name on it, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it says they will see many crowns upon his head, the true crowns of glory. Men will see the crowns of our Savior, the crowns of our Redeemer, the crowns of the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. And the reed, they mock him as if he had no dominion. See, they put a reed in his hands and laugh at him and say, you have no power. You have no power at all. You're so weak and powerless that we can even take the rod out of your own right hand and hit you on the head with it. What mockery to a king. The scepter was the sign of their power and their strength. And here, Jesus is allowing sinful man to take it out of his hand and to hit him on the head with it. Hitting him on the head with his own scepter. But, as the scripture tells us, the scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness more terrifying than a golden scepter. The Bible says that Christ, with this scepter of righteousness, will judge all the nations. They wound his head today. You remember in Psalm chapter 110, the prophecy is of the Son of God who sits at the right hand will come and strike through kings in the day of his wrath and will wound the head over many nations. Those soldiers could hit him on the head. One man. Jesus, when he returns, will wound the heads of the nations. This is his power. This is the irony of this situation. If they knew who he was, they'd be terrified. They bow before him. All of them, 300 to 500 soldiers, bowing before Christ and hailing him as the king. And the irony of this is that Jesus is the king. The irony of it is that he is the king. And as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, that God has exalted Christ above all principalities and all powers and above every name that is named, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus obeyed the Father unto death, 
God has exalted him and one day every knee, not just 305 to 500 Roman soldiers, but every knee of every person and every angel and every human being who has ever lived shall bow the knee like these Romans are doing right now and shall confess Jesus to be the King of Kings, but it will not be mockery. Think about this. Every knee. That, is, that includes your neighbor, your current neighbor right now, your boss, your classmates, your friends, your family. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus and proclaim him Lord. Isn't that an amazing thought? Things won't always go on like this. Right now, Jesus is mocked in our world, but things will not always go on like this, dear brothers and sisters. Isn't that a good thought? They are mocking the most exalted person in the universe. They are mocking their Savior. They are mocking the one who is coming to the world for these very men. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. And I'd like to show you what God is going to do with those who mock his son. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is quoted by the apostles and the apostles actually refer the psalm to the Jews and the Gentiles who put Jesus to death. Verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It's exactly what we're seeing in the Passion. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us, as if they could do that. It's a statement that God has no power. Now look what verse 4 says God will do. God, who sits in the heavens, shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Verse 4 is saying this, that one day God, well, who's mocking them now, will manifest this mocking. That God himself mocks men who mock him. God mocks. And God is much more terrifying than 500 Roman soldiers. God mocks. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, You are my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. The very things the Romans wanted. Jesus just asked the Father and he gives it to them, gives it to him. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. See, there's a way for men to be saved. There's a way for men to be saved, and that is to kiss the Son, to acknowledge the Son, to give glory to the Son, to believe in the Son, it says, to trust in him. 
and men shall be saved. Even those who mock him can be saved. But men mock now, and if they do not kiss the Son, God will mock them later, and in his wrath will destroy them. So bring. Please turn back to Matthew 27, verse 31 and 32. An amazing thing we see here in verse 31 and 32, after they're finished mocking Jesus, in their foolishness. They take the robe off from him, put his own raiment on, and they lead him away to be crucified. And in verse 32, what we see here is that the omnipotent God is too weak to carry the cross. The God who is omnipotent, who has become a man, is suffering under the weight of a piece of wood. An amazing thing for God to be doing in his manhood. J.C. Ryle reminds us, let us... Never forget that he had a real human body, a body exactly like our own, just as sensitive, just as vulnerable, just as capable of feeling intense pain. Jesus had been up all night. He hasn't slept. He didn't sleep the last night at all. If you've ever stayed up all night just playing a game or something, you know how tired you are in the morning, right? But he had been up all night not having leisure. He had been up all night sweating in the garden profusely, which must have been exhausting to sweat in the garden. Abandoned by his friends, which must have been emotionally exhausting. Beaten by the Jews. He went through technically four emotional trials before the Sanhedrin twice, then before Herod, and then before Pilate, walking back and forth, being mistreated being lied about and condemned to death must have been emotional and exhausting. Then he was scourged and then beaten by the Roman soldiers. Jesus must have been fatigued. And so he was in verse 32. And this is the point of, the, of Simon the Cyrene. Simon from Cyrene. Jesus was fatigued and the omnipotent God was too weak to carry the cross. The Roman soldiers were not showing him compassion by compelling Simon to carry the cross, but once again that Roman pragmatism. Jesus was to be crucified. Jesus could not carry his cross any longer. And they wouldn't carry it for him. So they recruit. They didn't volu- this man didn't volunteer. They pulled him out of the crowd and said, carry the cross at spear point. Not compassion, but pragmatism. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a city in eastern Libya, in North Africa. You can go visit it today, however, it's all in ruins. But it's one of those wonderful ancient cities that we can still see the ruins of and imagine what it looked like. Cyrene from eastern Libya. Simon was probably a Jewish pilgrim who was there for the Passover in Jerusalem. And he probably never expected such an unexpected turn of events. For him to go to the Passover, probably something he's done before, not thinking anything would unusual would happen. And this man is given the great privilege of carrying Jesus' cross where he would go and die for the sins of the world. Isn't that amazing? You and I are saved because of Simon. <laughs> because Simon got Jesus to Calvary. 
So God used Simon for the salvation of the world. People in our lives God uses to bring us to him. Is it not true? God chooses to grant us the great privilege of being used by him in other people's lives to bring them to Christ and to be saved. And all the glory goes to God. I mean, God could have used anybody. God just chose to use Simon. If Simon wasn't there, somebody else would have carried the cross. But what a privilege it was to be used to carry the cross to the crucifixion where Jesus would die for your and my sin. And what we also can piece together from what we know about Simon in the Gospels is that this was probably also an act of grace towards Simon himself. And Simon probably became a Christian because in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us his sons, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And both of those men were most likely Christians. And so Simon was probably saved through all of this as well. What we learn from this, well, we learn many things, but God can do unexpected things in any person's life at any time. You might get up in the morning one day and think, nothing is going to happen today. It's going to be the most common, mundane day of my life. And God could do the most unexpected thing in your life, either using you to bring another person to himself or saving your soul if you don't know him. All according to his amazing will. But the real point here is that Jesus was too weak to carry the cross. And so Simon carried it for him. Verse 33, they come to the place of death. A fitting place to atone for the sins of the world. The place of the skull. The skull represents death. The place where Jesus died was the place of death. The place of the wages of sin. This is what Golgotha means. Golgotha is the Hebrew word that means skull. The word Calvary is the Latin word that means skull. Calvary and Golgotha means skull, which means death. And this is where Jesus was brought to end his earthly life for you and I. It was a public place. For the Romans, crucifixion was all about deterrence. They didn't crucify people in the basement somewhere tucked away where no one could see. They crucified people in the public roads so everyone could see how painful and shameful this way of execution was to deter people from following in these men's footsteps. Usually those who were crucified were insurrectionists or violent murderers. Murderers or violent thieves, robbers. These are the men that the Romans would publicly display and say, don't do what they're doing. Don't be an insurrectionist. Don't be a murderer. Don't be a robber. You don't want to get this. God wanted the crucifixion of Jesus to be public too for all the world to see. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 tells us Jesus Christ was set forth by God to be the propitiation. And today we can still see if we look and we can still see what God has publicly set forth for our sakes, the crucifixion of Jesus. Just before the crucifixion in verse 34, it was customary to give those that they were going to crucify a sedative. And so here the Romans offered Jesus some vinegar mixed with gall, which is simply a sour wine drink that the Romans would have drunk themselves. So we shouldn't read into this any kind of cruelty that they're giving him a nasty drink. It was a drink that, they, that was very common for the Romans to drink called Pasca. It was a sour wine. 
but it was mixed with gall, which in the Greek is a green bitter liquid, which is probably myrrh or some drug. Jesus tastes it, he's probably thirsty, and he spits it out when he realizes what it was. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, there's a similar scene in that movie where Braveheart, uh, William Wallace, is going to be executed the following morning, and he's chained to the wall, and they're going to put him to death in a slow, kind of torturous way, and his lover comes to him, and she hides some drug within her mouth and says, take this, it will numb the pain. And Wallace says, no, it will numb my wits, and I must have them all. And I think this is the same with Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross and paid for your and my sins, he didn't want to be drowsy and forget about and not know what happened. He wanted to be fully aware of what he was doing because this was an act of love, not uh, just get it over with. Yes, knock me out, please. He's dying for you. It's a beautiful song that our friends in the Adams Road Band has written, I Would Die For You. And one of the lines says, With all the stripes and the beatings, I never had to question why. I just thought of you, and my love overflowed, and my pain just passed on by. This is what it was for Jesus, who suffered excruciating pain for us, but because he loved us. The scripture says he despised the shame. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, because of the joy that was set before him. That was his sedative, if you will. It was the joy that was set before him. And finally, in verse 35, notice how quickly Matthew passes over Jesus' crucifixion. What's so amazing about verse 35 is that the statement about Jesus being crucified is not even the main part of the verse. In the Greek, it's a participle. It's not the main subject at all. Most modern translations read it like this, write it like this. And having crucified him, they parted his garments by lot. The parting of the garments by lot is the main point of the verse. Having crucified him, they parted his garments. Matthew passes over the most amazing and significant event briefly, hardly mentioning anything about it at all. Because the most important thing in all the Bible is too big for words. And if you don't get it without them holding your hand and taking you through it step by step and saying, wow, you see how amazing this is? Then you really won't get it at all. He was crucified, brothers and sisters, for you and for me. The apostles have said enough. He was crucified between two thieves or robbers, violent thieves. And the scriptures were fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors, meaning he was counted to be an insurrectionist by men. And he was counted to be, he was treated as a sinner and an insurrectionist against God, by God, who is here now making him sin for us. Every single one of us is a thief and a murderer and an insurrectionist in the eyes of God. And Jesus is taking our place here as one of us for us dying in our place Barabbas was such an insurrectionist and a robber the scriptures tell us Barabbas would have been crucified Pilate would never have let Barabbas go under normal circumstances 
The only reason Pilate offered Barabbas to be released is because Pilate actually believed that the people would choose Barabbas over Jesus. But if Jesus wasn't there and that controversy wasn't happening and Barabbas was going to release a prisoner on Passover, he would never, or Pilate was going to release a prisoner on Passover, he would never have released Barabbas. Barabbas would have been crucified like these insurrectionists who rose up against Rome. Barabbas' life was literally spared by Jesus. He was released because of Jesus. He would have been put to death. In Barabbas, we see a picture of ourselves, don't we? That we would have been put to death by God. We would have been punished. We would have been judged and condemned were it not for Jesus. Don't take it for granted that you're saved. Were it not for Jesus, put your own name in the blank. You would have spent an eternity in hell. You would have if it was not for Jesus and his sacrifice. They cast lots for his raiment, which is a statement that Jesus is a goner. He's not going to need his clothes anymore. Jesus is hanging naked on the cross. They've got his clothes. The nails are in his hands and his feet. And he's looking down upon these men as they're basically making the statement, you're already dead. You won't need these anymore. You're not coming down. And it was true. He wasn't coming down from the cross. But it wasn't the last that the world would see of Jesus. Finally, when they're finished gambling for his garments, they sit back and they watch him and they watch and wait for death to complete its work. What evil had Jesus done that merited him this fate? What had he done? And in conclusion this morning, I'd like just to turn our attention to verse 37, where they set up over his head his accusation. This is why Jesus was crucified from the human perspective. It was because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Jesus didn't deny the charge. And for this reason, he was put on the cross by the Romans. The king of the Jews. Of course, it wasn't the Romans who went and found out Jesus. It was the Jews themselves who delivered up Jesus to be dead. It was the Jews themselves who accused Jesus of being the king or claiming to be the king. And the irony, once again, of all of this, because this whole event was so ironical, that Jesus is the king of the Jews and that this accusation above the cross is no lie. There's no lie here whatsoever. It's all true. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The Jews themselves believed in the coming king who would overthrow the Romans, but they rejected Christ, Jesus, because they hated him. They didn't want him to be their king. And yet the beauty of it all is that he was dying for them. The specific purpose of Christ's coming out of his own mouth. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was dying on the cross. This is God's side of it now. Jesus was dying on the cross for you and for me. Jesus was dying for us all. And in the cross, 
we have the revelation of the wrath of God because God is not the kind of God who's going to overlook your sin. All of your sin. Every sin that you and I have ever committed. God is not the kind of God who's going to wink at it and say, no big deal. You know what? I think you're a great guy. I really like the way you dress. I really like that, the way you play that song. I think you're a great soccer player. You know what? For those reasons, you can come into heaven. Let's just forget the whole sin thing. God is not the kind of God who's going to overlook any of your sin. The cross of Jesus in that he died for us and that he gave his life for a ransom for us reveals the wrath of God against our sin. This is the only way for us to be saved. None of us are righteous. None of us obey God. None of us love God. None of us love our neighbors in the way that God requires. All of us are unrighteous, the scripture says. The scriptures tell us that God is righteous. God is a just God. God is a God of love. God is a God who cares about righteousness. And God cannot overlook our sin. Only righteous people will live. Unrighteous people will die. And for this reason, you and I have no hope in, our, in and of ourselves, do we? Based upon this truth that God is a righteous God and that only the righteous will live, you and I have no hope in and of ourselves. The cross not only reveals the wrath of God against sin, the cross of Jesus reveals the love of God towards sinners. Because why is Jesus there? Why didn't, okay, we know that God is a wrathful God. Why didn't God just pour out wrath then? Why is Jesus there? Why is the Creator a mangled piece of flesh on the cross? Why? Because He's doing it so that you do not have to perish. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son so that they won't perish. The cross reveals to us what God is like. Yes, righteous, just, wrathful, will not tolerate any sin, but a God of grace who did this for you and me, even though we do not deserve this, we did not earn this. Don't ever think the cross of Christ was something that you had coming. It was coming to you. It was expected. Of course it was going to happen. Don't ever think like that. You didn't deserve it. And it's a wonderful gift. It's one of those surprise gifts that you don't expect coming. It's not like a birthday gift that you know your parents are going to give you a gift. This is one of those surprise gifts in the middle of the year for no reason. But he loves you. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that whoever believes in him will be declared righteous by God. God looks upon the believer and he sees them not as a sinner, but as completely blameless and free from all sin because Jesus took away our sins on the cross. Isn't that wonderful? He did that for you and for me. If you believe today, it is because of Christ crucified that you can have that confidence today. That when God looks at you right now, when you get up and leave church and go to eat and whatever, whatever you do and you sin later on today, you can have the confidence that God looks upon you as blameless and without any sin because Jesus died for you. What an unspeakable gift. No words do it justice. We need to see through the words to the reality of it and worship. 
Whoever believes shall be saved. So, as the sign above his head reads, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's a true statement. This is the Anointed One of God. Behold Him. He's publicly put forth for us all to see. Look at Him. Consider Him. Let all the world see Him lifted up upon the cross in the spiritual Holy of Holies, His atoning blood sprinkling the heavy, heavenly mercy seat and bringing salvation into the world. This is it, brothers and sisters. It does not get higher than this. It does not get deeper than this. This is it. This is Jesus, the salvation of Jehovah for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we are just so aware of our inadequacy as we discuss and meditate upon this salvation that you have wrought for us. Help us to think about this and be thoughtful. Help us to realize, Lord, that there is so much that go behind the words that are spoken and the words that are written. May we be thoughtful readers of the Bible. And Lord, help us to meditate on the cross and to realize who you are there and to think about who you are there and not have a lopsided view of who you are or a phony view of who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are righteous. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much and that you did this for us. May we be thankful. May our hearts be filled with praise and worship towards you, Lord. May we be inspired and want to serve you. Please lift our eyes to see into this Holy of Holies. Let us not be content with a superficial view. Thank you again, Lord. We owe everything to you. And we look forward to the day when all the world will bow their knees. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.